Welcome, podcast friends. We're back with volume six of the Best Investment Writing Series. Each year, our team carefully sorts through tons of research and investment letters from some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers from all over the world to pick the best of the best to share with you. We offer the authors of those pieces the chance to record an audio version as a segment of the podcast. Past participants included the likes of Cam Harvey, Larry Swedro, and Rob Arnott. Enough from me. Let's get to our guests and let them take over this special episode. Hi, this is Dan Rasmussen. I'm the founder and CIO for Dad Advisors. For Dad Advisors is a hedge fund that pursues multiple strategies across equities, credit, and global macro. To learn more about us, you can follow me on Twitter at @fordadcap or at www.fordadcap.com. We do write a weekly research email, which we'd love for you to follow if you like our work. Before we like get to the piece, I'd like to thank Stream by AlphaSense for sponsoring today's episode. The money from this episode is being donated to Harvard Center for Human Flourishing. The Center for Human Flourishing at Harvard studies the question of what brings happiness and meaning to people's lives. The work is done by a group of psychologists, theologians, economists, and other social scientists who try to apply a quantitative metric using survey data and causal measurements to try to really discern what matters. I'm hoping this will have a real impact in shaping people's lives for the better, and I hope that if you're interested, you'll reach out to learn more. Now let's get into the episode. I'm going to read a piece titled Emerging Markets Crisis Investing. In a 2010 interview and former CAO of Harvard Management Company and a notorious emerging markets bull declared confidently that the world was on the precipice of a global realignment. This realignment, he declared, was accelerating the migration of growth and wealth dynamics from the industrial world to the larger emerging economies. At the time, most pundits and investors, particularly those in the developed world, accepted Al Arian's position as common knowledge. After all, they reasoned, globalized trade policies in an increasingly interconnected world naturally shifted capital away from boring first world financial centers and towards new exciting economies like China, Brazil, and Indonesia. To take advantage of this obvious trend, Wealthy investors poured money into emerging market ETFs and mutual funds through the late 2000s, in their mind providing capital that would accelerate the inevitable hockey stick growth bound to appear in emerging economies. It never happened. Perhaps we have experienced some sort of global realignment in the last decade, as Elarian predicted, but that realignment has never translated into equity returns. Buy and hold EM investors have never experienced the above market growth about which they were so confident. MSCI's Emerging Market Index, compared to the S&P 500, AM investors would have been far better suited in traditional developed economies. In fact, $100 invested in the Emerging Market Index in 2010 would net a measly $47 of profit today, compared to a $383 profit from the S&P 500 Index. This underperformance and the boosterism of the proponents of this asset class is far from a recent phenomenon. In a 1995 report, Trends in Developing Economies, the World Bank declared growth in developing country stock markets will be enhanced as policies liberalizing trade and investment regulations, realigning exchange rates, consolidating public financings, and continuing with privatization are implemented. As with El Arian, the World Bank's prediction may indeed have come to pass, as today's global economy features liberal trade policies, investment deregulation, and aligned exchange rates. But in a key sense, we noticed the World Bank was wrong. These changes simply did not drive equity returns. Moreover, these EM equities underperform their developed market equivalents despite a higher GDP growth. According to IMF, the average annual GDP growth in emerging economies was 4.7 versus 1.8% for developed economies. 
The disappointing results for EM equity investors were even worse for investors who specifically thought to invest in EM growth stocks, which, in theory, should have benefited the most from the sort of realignment Elarian and the World Bank described. These stocks were, in fact, the major cause of EM underperformance, as EM value stocks delivered returns on par with the S&P 500. $100 in EM growth stocks in 1989 would have been worth less than half of the same investment in the S&P 500 or in EM value stocks. Taken together, these insights paint a bleak picture for emerging market equity investing over the past 30 years. Over this period, emerging market investors took on more risk for less reward, while being unable to capture the benefits of GDP growth in these economies. The frequency and severity of emerging market crises help explain both slow growth and high volatility in emerging market equity. In 1989, emerging economies have experienced significantly more crises than their developed counterparts, as measured by the percentage drawdown in these equity markets. Not only are these crises more frequent in emerging markets, they're also more severe. When crises occur in developed markets, investors respond with predictions of the apocalypse. Take, for example, Mad Money host Jim Cramer, who screamed on air in late 2007, it's not the time to be an academic, we have an Armageddon. Yet these panicked investors succumb to Chicken Little syndrome. They've been hit by an acorn and scream that the sky is falling. After all, an investor in New York or London, even in the midst of financial turmoil, never doubts that a government bond will safely store capital, that his political system is stable, or that the water will continue to run from his faucet. Indeed, every American crisis in the last century, market indexes have experienced short-term pain and a long-term rebound to even higher values. But the same is not true for an investor living in a developing country. When poorer markets enter times of crisis, there are few certainties. Perhaps government will default on its debt, or even more extreme, maybe war has uprooted an established political system. When poor countries enter these same financial crises, the question is not when, but whether their economy will truly recover. Take, for example, the Philippines, a country which, alongside many others in the developing world, experienced a financial crisis in late 1997. The Philippines MSCI Index, which tracks overall stock market performance, has never returned to its 1997 peak. In other words, when emerging markets enter crisis periods, some countries simply never recover. The probability of recovering to pre-crisis levels after 24 months by crisis severity based on GFT equity data since 1987 shows that the historical probability of equity recovery is significantly lower in emerging markets. After a 50% drawdown, 92% of the time developed countries have recovered, whereas only in 75% of the cases have emerging markets recovered. In his book, The Volatility Machine, Michael Pettis delivers a compelling theory explaining both growth and crisis. Pettis proposes a model of economic growth that focuses on liquidity conditions in wealthy countries. Typically, we tend to think of capital flow from developed to emerging markets as a function of growth opportunities in poor countries. Pettis argues that the causality is precisely reversed. Instead, increased liquidity conditions in rich countries lead ambitious investors to make non-traditional emerging market bets. These bets, Pettis argues, drive growth in emerging economies. In this way, growth doesn't attract investment, rather investment causes growth. That's not to say that conditions internal to emerging markets don't matter. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Because EM growth is contingent on foreign investment, conditions internal to a developing country can scare rich investors, who subsequently remove their capital, triggering a financial crisis. Here, Pettis cites Mexico's 1994 tequila crisis, a financial panic precipitated by the assassination of a popular presidential candidate. Emerging markets are more prone to these exogenous market-moving events, political assassination, tumultuous transfers of power, civil war. And when these events occur, central banks in the developing world often lack the global credibility to comfort wealthy investors. To make matters worse, a disproportionate number of investors in emerging markets are speculators with short-term horizons. 
these investors are often unwilling to ride out a small loss, and their exit further exacerbates existing crises. These structural forces combine to generate more volatility in emerging markets. Intense liquidity dependence and structural instability combine in emerging markets to generate immense volatility that magnifies both investor optimism and pessimism. In this sense, periods of growth become more lucrative and periods of crisis more disastrous. Emerging markets have underperformed the S&P 500 in contractionary environments and outperformed in growth periods. If, as Pettis's research suggests, liquidity plays a more important role in emerging markets than in their developed counterparts, investors should be duly compensated for the value of the cash that they provide. At the same time, it seems that the value of this cash diminishes when a plenitude of investors dabble in EM investments. This theory of crisis investing in emerging markets is not the result of Pettis's book alone. Through the lens of economic development studies, he was exploring something the finance community had already become obsessed with, the relationship between stock market liquidity shocks and associated asset price returns. It has been well acknowledged in quantitative finance since the 1980s that all else being equal, illiquid assets generally trade at lower prices on the basis of their expected cash flows compared to more liquid assets. In times of scarce liquidity, investors free from illiquid assets and towards more liquid safe havens. The value factor has dramatically outperformed in post-crisis recovery periods globally as well as in emerging markets. And investors who are present to take the other side of these trades were historically rewarded handsomely, beyond what we can explain using other fundamental risk factors. The last 20 years of quantitative finance literature have also highlighted that the premium paid to this contra-flight-to-liquidity trade is strongest in emerging markets, especially during global liquidity shocks. And researchers have found that these premia are not eliminated by transaction costs or slippage alone. However, few attempts have been made to bridge the gap between academic theory and practical, executable strategies that align with the evidence. What works on paper hasn't yet been put to work on Wall Street today. We hope our focus here bridges that gap. To learn more, you can download our entire Emerging Markets Crisis Investing White Paper at www.ferdadcap.com. Thank you. (laughs) 